Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. From St. Louis Public Radio, this is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. So we're not discriminating on gender. No one can get these treatments. This concept of gender dysphoria and whether it counts as a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. If you start a treatment, you can continue it. This is clearly a mental health issue. When we say daily living, it's my understanding that what we're really talking about is getting dressed, driving a car, going to work, feeding yourself. The one thing I have learned from getting to consult all of you every month is that it just comes down sometimes to the individual judge. A police sergeant in DeSoto sued after he was fired for mocking the death of Michael Brown. He claimed he had a right to call the late Ferguson teen a, quote, ghetto clown. Is that covered by the First Amendment? And how about the University of Missouri? Two transgendered teens are suing its healthcare system, saying it illegally discriminates against them by refusing to provide certain treatments. Could they have a case under federal law? These are big legal questions, and we're fortunate to have a panel of three top lawyers with us today to sort them out. Yes, today is our legal roundtable. And joining us now to dig into all the big legal issues facing the St. Louis area, Missouri, and beyond is Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former prosecutor in both state and federal court. She now practices at Jenkins and Kling PC. Nicole, welcome back. Thank you for having me. And we're also joined today by Arindam Carr. He's a shareholder at Polsinelli. He focuses on antitrust compliance, counseling, and government investigations. He also provides outside general counsel services to higher education institutions and emerging entities. He also regularly handles pro bono immigration matters. Arindam, we're so glad you're back with us today. Thank you. And finally, today making her legal roundtable debut is Patty Williams. She is an attorney and the founder of Lex Valorum. That's a St. Louis firm specializing in business law for entrepreneurs. She's been practicing law in St. Louis since 1993. She's worked as general counsel for companies in the healthcare, industrial manufacturing, and energy sectors. She also has an executive MBA from our own Washington University's Olin Business School. So, Patty, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. And you feel ready for this? Ready I'm to excited. make that debut? Good. <laughs> well, let's dive right in. Let's start with a discussion. Let's talk about this landmark $1.7 billion jury verdict. This is out of federal court in Kansas City, Missouri. Observers say this could upend the entire real estate industry. How big is this, Arindam? Well, anytime you get a, a antitrust cases rarely go to trial. And when you get them and you get a verdict uh, of this magnitude, um, it is significant. Under the antitrust laws, uh, damages get trebled. So that $1.7 billion uh, dollar, uh, verdict is actually trebled if it goes through uh, and survives appeal. So three times that amount. So it is, it is a big deal in terms of a dollar amount. Yeah, and this is something that kind of touches into all of our lives. Many of us have bought a home or sold a home. What's sort of the core of this antitrust case here? Sure. Uh, many of us have gone through the, the uh, home buying process. This is essentially an argument that under uh, the rules that govern uh, agents uh, through brokerages, buyers and seller agents typically split the commission. 
Um, and the argument under uh, this case and what was at trial was that agreement um, that is mandated uh, through the uh, through the rules and regulations that agents have to follow uh, requires them to split that commission. And it the argument is it artificially inflates what that commission amount is as opposed to a different system in which a buyer will pay its agent whatever it sees fit and the seller will pay its agent whatever it sees fit. The argument being that the commission rate would be lower if you didn't have that agreement, um, which they, uh, at least this jury, found to be uh, in violation of the antitrust laws. It's interesting. There has been some talk for a while about how this is an industry that is maybe ripe for some disruption. There's a startup here in St. Louis called Clever that they've been trying to do just that. And I think maybe their growth has been hobbled by these agreements where people are splitting these fees. So it might be a big source of frustration, but a legal case. Nicole, do you think this is on firm ground here? I think this is kind of the issue du jour, and I think that this is going to be a big deal. I think, you know, it's debatable whether there's a better system, but I think that this has uh, gotten some ground in the legal community, and I think uh, there's more to come. Now, Patty, what do you make of this? I think that it will make some changes, and it it brings to mind that there are other industry trade groups that might have similar arrangements that they might want to evaluate. Um, I've started thinking about just the Bar Association and the informal rules that we sometimes have amongst ourselves, but I don't I don't think I could find an example of something where 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 we're injuring the the consumer, um, where these this this seems to me to clearly injure the consumer, um, and you get into a situation where uh, without changes, I think what you would find is that buyers are no longer able to find agents. Mm-hmm. There becomes a, a difficulty for the buyer, and then you have buyers at the mercy of the selling agent. So, I, you know, I feel like we need both buyer and seller agents to to keep things fair. Um, and when an, in a trade association or an industry starts to make rules that benefits itself, they should always pause to think, is this, a, is this an antitrust violation? Arindam, it feels like antitrust has been a hot area of law lately. And I know that, you know, you've joked about how antitrust is not a hot or sexy area of the law. But this is something that uh, President Biden's administration has been interested in, that they feel like companies can't be out there colluding. And yet it's not just any collusion. It has to be something that ends up affecting the consumer. That's that's the heart of it. that's the the easiest way to define harm to competition, um, you know, often in the form of higher prices or less options or alternatives for, for products. So uh, that's probably the easiest way to explain what that harm means. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, President Biden campaigned on a much more robust uh, antitrust enforcement uh, regime, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Um, you know, the Justice Department... Uh, in fact, investigated the realty industry under the Trump administration and Mm -hmm. came up with a settlement agreement. And when the Biden administration came in, they actually uh, moved to revoke that settlement agreement because they didn't think it went far enough. Mm -hmm. Um, The court didn't agree uh, with that. And so that settlement's still in place. But the DOJ, you know, there are reports they're still looking at at things in in that industry as well as other things. And 
um, yeah, it is it is hot, a hot topic. I I just came off a seven week trial on on an antitrust case, so it is it is a busy time. And that's when you're saying these cases don't always go to trial. Yeah. Some of them are clearly going to trial right now. Yeah, yeah. This one that the Trump administration was after, and and the Biden people said was maybe too soft. Was that related to these same sort of broker type fees? And that's what it was focused on. It was it was looking at this uh, that settlement agreement really went toward the idea of better transparency. Mm -hmm. So um, at one point in time, it wasn't very clear other than what we know traditionally that, hey, when you go to buy a house, you always hear, oh, the seller's paying your fee. But at one point in time, it wasn't clear what that fee was or what that commission rate was. So one of the big tenets of the settlement agreement uh, with with the DOJ was that was going to be much more transparent. They didn't really go to the actual fees or the splitting of the fees. Um, and so that remains to be seen whether that's going to be an issue that's going to be raised. Mm. For everyone listening out there, you may have a question or a comment about this topic. I imagine many people have been affected by this or even work in this industry. You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. Nicole, as you mentioned, this is something where I think we're already seeing some action. There's already another one of these lawsuits that's been filed. This sort of thing doesn't just we get the verdict and then everybody moves on. This this is going to become a booming industry. Right. I think this is going to become a booming industry because, of course, there are a lot of real estate agencies out there and they do this. And um, so the first lawsuit involved a um, first group of, um, in, sorry, of real estate agents. And then, you know, I think there are more to come, you know, and the National Association of Realtors, they also play a part in it. But then there's also um, other brokerages that are going to play a part in it. I do think this is um, I think this is an issue du jour that we're going to see more. Hmm. So this is probably not the last time we'll be talking about this one and these these fees for people buying or selling houses. Here's another big case that is making some big headlines. This one involves Roundup. This weed killer was made by St. Louis's own Monsanto that's now owned by Bayer. And the lawsuits that have been filed against this product have been a major headache for Bayer. A jury in Cole County, Missouri, recently found against them to the tune of $1.56 billion. That includes $500 million in punitive damages for each of the people who filed suit in this lawsuit over Roundup. Nicole, what do you make of the size of that verdict? Well, it's massive. And not only is it massive, it's massive compared to some of the other cases that went before where um, they weren't even winners. So to see a jury verdict this massive, and I think, you know, part of the issue was that the judge let in more evidence this time, different evidence that um, was more damning to uh, bear on this issue. And I think that's probably part of the reason for the massive jury award. But it remains to be seen whether it'll be held up in the appellate court. Yeah, we should say there's a statement that Bayer has made about this litigation. Quote, in contrast to prior trials, recent trial courts improperly permitted plaintiffs to misrepresent the worldwide regulatory and scientific support for our products by falsely characterizing the EU's reapproval process and EPA's assessment of glyphosate as safety concerns. In fact, the EU commission just last week reapproved glyphosate for another 10 years following positive scientific assessments. This is going to come down to a lot of details. And yet there is so much litigation here. There are so many claims. Um, you know, a ton of them have already settled. And yet 50,000 
remain pending. Patty, you've worked as a general counsel. Can you even imagine trying to manage this caseload? Well, we did see similar claims like that in, uh, I'm thinking of the welding rods, for example. That was, we spent decades fighting litigation as to whether or not those fumes um, cause a Parkinson's-like disease, which, you know, that science was, I'm going to say debunked. I, I, I use that term loosely. I don't know that I'm not trying to say that it was, but the science came to be debunked. But we spent over a decade, probably 15 years, tied up with these cases. Wow. Um, you know, the 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 never lost one that I can recall. Um, but the size of those punitives for each individual. I guess, in my understanding, that's supposed to be based on the net worth of Bear. But if you're going to give that much to each individual, that's going to exceed what would be. I don't know what their yeah. net. But I mean, you fifty thousand times five hundred million. It quickly can grow. <laughs> quickly <laughs> seems like say. yeah that that level of punitives is going to be excessive considering you know the the value of the company. Yeah, when you talk about just this many cases, you know Bayer had won nine jury verdicts in a row on these roundup cases. This is all over the country, but a number of them were here in St. Louis County. Now they've lost five in a row. Nicole, I'm wondering if these lawyers are able to sort of sharpen their arguments. They're starting to realize what works what a jury responds to with 50,000 cases, you're getting a lot of attempts to try to get this right. I think that's part of it. I also think that another part of it is um, the different judges. And so a different judge is going to let in, for example, the evidence that you were just talking about. And when that evidence comes in, it's a lot more damning. So, you know, if they're able to show that the European Union said that this stuff was dangerous, and then in different trial, they're not allowed to say that, that's a huge effect on the jury. And so I think that's why you're seeing, uh, in large part, the different verdicts here. And different judges have the right to make those different evidentiary decisions. I can't imagine trying to be a judge sorting through. I mean, this is one of the most hotly contested issues. Scientists, I mean, this seems like a nightmare for a judge who'd be in this case. And then there's going to be other judges reviewing what they've done. That's right. And each, like I said, each judge is his or her own gatekeeper for the evidence in the trial. We do need to take a quick break, uh, but when we come back here, we'll talk about the University of Missouri and a lawsuit that accuses it of discriminating against transgender youth. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. Now, the University of Missouri, they are accused of discriminating against transgender youth, but they're not accused of treating them differently in the classroom or in the workplace. Instead, the University of Missouri health system is being sued for no longer providing a certain type of medical treatment. This seems like an unusual sort of lawsuit. Patty, what, what's the heart of the argument here? Well, you know, I, I think um, that it, it's, I don't think it's, they're likely to prevail. Hmm. And I, I 
don't say that. The reason I say that is because you, MU Health doesn't provide abortions. I mean, you you can't. There are uh, some of them. Some hospital systems refuse to provide vasectomies. Um, it seems to me that a professional, you know, doctors shouldn't be compelled to perform any procedure that they don't believe is in the best interest of the patient. What, but what, so that would be kind of the legal look at it. The human trouble, troubling part of this is that two, these two uh, people, the one I believe is a, uh, they're delaying puberty so that the child made, because the child does have some ambiguous feelings about their gender. So they're delaying puberty, um, which is, a decision that I think a parent should be able to make to delay. You know, if your if your daughter starts going into puberty in the third grade, you might want to delay the, that effect. And if it can be done medically and safely, I think that's great treatment. But if the this patient doesn't get that treatment, they are going to instantly, you know, tr- revert. Yeah, it, not instantly, but. It, they will start to revert, which seems like a tremendous harm to the patient. Although then I I've gone back and forth on it because then the patient should just go to a facility that does offer the treatment. You know, if if that you know with abortion you can't even do that, right? So right. so they're allowed to sort of say, I don't want to treat this. I don't want to treat with these drugs. Yeah. And obviously, we should say for the University of Missouri, this is something where they were providing these treatments and then a political firestorm happened in the state of Missouri. And now, much like many other healthcare systems, the University of Missouri is saying, we're not going to do this anymore. And these are these teens are suing to say, hey, we just want to finish our course of treatment here. Yeah. Nicole? Yeah, I think the interesting twist on this case is this concept of gender dysphoria and whether it counts as a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So, you know, gender dysphoria is this concept that you don't feel that you were born in the body that you belonged in. And the definition of a disability under um, the ADA is a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities of the individual. So if gender dysphoria fits under this definition, then we have some issues, right? Mm. Because the Affordable Care Act prohibits discrimination uh, on the grounds of sex or disability. We have all kinds of protections for various disabilities. So some of the legislation in this area has really put these hospitals in a bind. They can't go one way, they can't go the other way. So um, this is fascinating to see how this will turn out um, and whether or not gender dysphoria is going to classify as a disability. Yeah, and it's interesting because they are getting federal funding because of the Affordable Care Act. Does that mean now they've got to fo- they've got to follow the Americans with Disability Act? That is triggered here. Yeah, no, I think as Nicole noted, uh, these systems are being put in a real tough spot with the federal law versus the state laws on these uh, issues. And so whether you follow the ACA or the Rehabilitation Act versus the state law is a big issue. The other, I think, two pieces that are really interesting, um, no surprise, this is not the first and only case on this issue. Um, Oklahoma, Arkansas, several other states have similar um, state laws that are now banning these types of procedures and these types of treatments, and there are challenges going up and down the the circuits uh, as well as the state uh, courts. 
But what's really interesting, they're all uniformly really relying on the Dobbs opinion and expanding that to utilize that, hey, this is now we have the Supreme Court ruling on these issues, and we're going to extend this now to uh, issues relating to transgender rights, if you will. And that's one piece. And the other one that's really interesting, especially on this case, there is a grandfather exception under the state law that if you start a treatment, you can continue it. Um, and as I understand, at least one of the minors in this case had started treatment. And so okay. that's the other issue that I think is um, interesting to see what will happen, why they didn't take that exception to continue the treatment there. Yeah. So state law would allow University of Missouri to keep doing it for these kids. Yeah. They've maybe taken a more cautious path of saying, we don't want to be We're in the touching. path of these state legislators. Right. We're just going to, you know, let's let's let these kids loose. Those conservative yeah. lawyers. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, funny how that works. And it, it does seem to me like the Affordable Care Act could be expanded or amended to protect this. But I think that as soon as we, if we protect these the the transgender uh, medical processes, which I think we we should, we ought to also require insurance companies to cover infertility treatments. Hmm. I mean that's another real, you know, life affecting thing. Um, it's, Do you think there could be an argument under the Americans with Disabilities Act that would open the door to to say they have to cover that? Well, I would try to make the stretch. I mean, to the Americans, if interferes with your daily living. I don't know that not having, you know, not being able to get pregnant interferes with your daily living or, you know, and when we say daily living, it's my understanding that what we're really talking about is getting dressed, driving a car, going to work, feeding yourself. If that's all we're talking about, then I don't know that we could use it to expand to transgender or infertility. I, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't have an opinion. I, I don't know the right answer. I just see all these questions. Mm -hmm. That would be triggered by this. Arundam, yeah. you mentioned there were all these challenges that, that are being filed to this type of state law. Are you seeing others that rely upon the American Disabilities Act? That's how they're trying to push it? You know, I believe this is actually, uh, and, and don't hold me to it because yeah. I haven't read all the, all the, uh, the other uh, cases, but I think this might be a, a novel approach mm -hmm. to uh, addressing this issue that I have not seen. Typically, um, in some of the other cases that are slightly ahead of where we are in Missouri procedurally, it's a lot of equal protection mm -hmm. type claims, uh, general discrimination, sexual discrimination, and those have not been successful, I think, as, mm -hmm. as Patty um, sort of alluded to, because Unfortunately, transgender, uh, the transgender community is not considered a protected class right now. There's not a, a clear basis to have a higher level of scrutiny for laws that impact them. Um, that's been a challenge. And the way the states have been really arguing this is that we're not discriminating on sex, as they call it, because we're not letting people who were born as boys or girls to get access to the treatment. So we're not discriminating on gender. Mm -hmm. Everyone, no one can get these treatments. So that's been the, the the linchpin of some of the difficulties of why the law has continued in Oklahoma and Arkansas and some of the other states where they've been really kind of following this um, game plan, if you will, of, mm -hmm. of restricting these rights. Yeah, I think that's why this is such a novel uh, um, approach. And I think it has a path. 
I, I think, you know, certainly if they can convince uh, a judge that the ADA covers this as a disability, which, you know, even our Missouri Supreme Court has called gender identity issues um, being discrimination. So they won't specifically say transgender, but they will say if a person doesn't feel like uh, or is being accused of not having the traits of the gender that they were born with, that is discrimination. And so mm -hmm. there, there really may be a pathway. And of course, we think mental health issues constitute you know, are, are included under the ADA as a disability. So why not this? This is clearly a mental health issue. And um, I just think if anything has a chance, this might be the most interesting one. <laughs> it's interesting that they would try it in Missouri. And I imagine you obviously have to look for a red state that's passing these kind of laws. But at the same time, are, are Missouri judges going to be receptive to this? Uh, the one thing I have learned from getting to consult all of you every month is that it just comes down sometimes to the individual judge. Uh, Patty, your, your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, and I think that the transgender community does have a better claim under the ADA than you would for infertility because it does have more of an impact on the daily living. It's just not the typical daily living that we think of when we think of the Americans with Disabilities Act. But if you're transgender and have to undress in front of, you know, in a locker room that you don't feel like you belong in, uh, it could in, affect your ability to go to school or, you know, various things. And so I think they have a better claim hmm. than, than uh, you know, other, other groups that might try to use that for infertility or, or for abortion, you know. Uh, but it is, it is still – it's not the traditional way courts have interpreted activities of daily living. Hmm. Well, I have a feeling this is not the last time we're going to talk about this particular piece of litigation, so we will stay on top of this. Let's turn to a lawsuit that's now gotten all the way to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. Alad Gross, who is running for attorney general as a Democrat, um, he has sued over a number of cases where people were accidentally held in jail in the city of St. Louis even after their charges were dismissed. Most of those cases have settled, but not Michael Jones. This is a guy, he's now 75 years old. He was held eight months um, by accident. Can you imagine that? You're, the charges against you are dismissed. Somebody just kind of forgets to deal with it, and you're sitting in jail for eight months. That is a nightmare. So he sued over this. Can't blame him for that. The city tried to get the suit dismissed in federal court, citing qualified immunity. That failed. So the city appealed to the Eighth Circuit. Nicole, here we are. What do you make of this one? I mean, first of all, let me just say that this is horrifying. I mean, when I was a prosecutor, if I ever had somebody in the jail who didn't belong there, even for a minute, I was horrified, right? So this is absolutely horrendous. But when we're talking about the qualified immunity issue, um, you know, I think some people have an issue with it because we know that the mayor ran on, you know, having transparency and not having these issues um, be something to hide behind. But of course, now here we are, and they're bringing it up. And so they're trying to say that they have they have qualified immunity. The thing is, in this particular case, it may not matter because you can overcome qualified immunity by gross negligence. And this, to me, is a great example of gross negligence. I mean, this is an unreasonable risk of harm to another person. This is, I mean, this meets that standard. The question is whether our, whether we think that the city should actually bring, be bringing up the qualified immunity immunity issue at all. 
Yeah, and to take this to the Eighth Circuit, not just to, you know, lose on the trial level, but to try to continue to pursue this. I think there are some critics of the mayoral administration who would say, hey, you know, you're not in favor of hiding behind. We can't be sued for this, Um, that this is maybe at odds with some of the public positions she's taken. Yet at the same time, the city also has to sort of protect our assets as, as taxpayers. Arundam, do you have thoughts on this one? I, I think you're spot on there in the sense that there is the the, the political argument and, and the belief and then the, the legal duties and obligations of a city um, to not waive arguments that they ought to be bringing in these types of cases. And, um, you know, I think all of the prior cases similar to this have have settled from the from the uh, um, from that uh, particular uh, center, and so my suspicion is this this will settle, but because uh, they don't want a bad precedent on unqualified immunity. But you know, this is something that kind of fuels the fire of should qualified immunity exist for you know police officers and and prison personnel. Uh, I think uh, the annual bringing up of the and the Qualified Immunity Act in Congress is rolling through again. So, um, you know, this is these are some of those issues when you have things. But I think, as Nicole said, I think there's some things here that will probably get past the qualified immunity issue. Yeah, it's interesting to me that there are so many different things I could sue over and I would be able to just bring that claim and we could fight it out in front of a jury. And yet if somebody imprisons me for eight months when I shouldn't be imprisoned, that potentially I can't sue over that just because they're they're the government coming in as a layman. Yeah. This, this shocks the ordinary person. Yeah. Patty, um, this whole doctrine of qualified immunity, uh, this is something we've frequently talked about on this show, Mm -hmm. and I know there's a lot of strong feelings for and against. This gross negligence standard, this seems like this would apply here. It does seem like it would apply here. Um, I I was also wondering about the public defender. um, Once they're – does the person have no representation after the case is – Dismissed. I mean, does is he should does, his own lawyer have gotten him yeah, out? Yeah, or do yeah. they just not even get access to a public defender when because the public defender's done the job, right? Case yeah. dismissed, and is is that just the missing step in this process? How did I mean? How did this happen? That is a great question. I know that is what the Eighth Circuit was asking. How did this happen? How did this keep happening? And I should say, um, Alad Gross uh, has told the Riverfront Times this was happening. He had at least seven clients this happened to, although not for eight months, but that it has not been happening in recent years. So that's the happy ending yeah. I guess we can look for. For whatever reason, they, you know, this, this problem continued to happen. I don't think we have to worry about it happening right now. Well, and they also finally closed the workhouse. So Yeah. So now they only have one jail to manage. That helps, right? <laughs> I do think it did come up of whose responsibility was it to mm-hmm. inform the jail that this person should be released. And I think in certain situations, it was the prosecutor. In other situations, it was the court. Mm-hmm. And I think they got bogged down into you know, the back and forth whose responsibility was this. The bottom line is it does not matter. This person cannot have that happen to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somebody should write this man a, a, a check. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My thoughts on the matter. So here's another case in the city that also involves the criminal justice system. Uh, Gabriel Gore is now in charge of the St. Louis Circuit Attorney's Office. By all accounts, seems like he has been a huge improvement over Kim Gardner. 
But one family of a murder victim recently detailed to the Riverfront Times just a litany of sadness. This case went on for six years after their loved one was murdered. And there was time after time where they were not informed about what was going on. Uh, They found out about things too late. They weren't told that the jury was back. They learned that the case against this alleged killer had been dropped for good after the news was already in the newspaper. Nicole, you've been a prosecutor. What kind of duty do prosecutors owe to victims' families? And is it a legal duty or a moral duty? So it's a legal duty, and this is an issue near and dear to my heart, and I love telling our listeners that there really is a Victim's Bill of Rights in Missouri. People don't necessarily automatically know this, but it's written in to the Missouri Constitution. It's very explicit. It identifies all of the things that you have the right to be informed of and all of the things that you as a victim have a right to participate in. There's also a statute that says the same thing. The problem is there's no enforcement mechanism. None. None. So I myself have brought cases based on these provisions, and um, sometimes I've had judges thumb their nose at me. Other judges take it very seriously. I think we maybe need an enforcement provision. If we thought highly enough to put this in our constitution, uh, I think it's a big deal. And I think, um, you know, at the very least, victims should be informed that they have these rights and that they can bring them up. Yeah, and... and not that we've ever talked about Kim Gardner on this show, but um, you know this is something uh, in the in the final report from Attorney General Bailey on the Kim Gardner situation. I think he in fact cited the the state statute on the the victim's rights and her failure to really abide by it. So uh, I you know to Nicole's point, you know. There probably does need to be some enforcement here, whether that is something the AG is going to do from now on, uh, now that he's referencing it, is to be seen. But uh, um, it, it is nonetheless a, a, a absolutely tragic story. Yeah. Patty? Is, is it because of a lack of staffing? Because I know in some counties, in most counties, that uh, maybe in all, they have a victim's rights unit that mm-hmm. works with the victims. And in, in the limited experience I've had with the system, those people are amazing, mm-hmm. the victim's rights people. I mean, they really are. I, I assume they're social workers with some, you know, criminal, and they're they're just amazing. So this Victim's Bill of Rights, um, I'm sure that most people do not know. I did not know until you just said it, that it was, that it's in the Constitution and by statute. So people should be more aware. And then we should dedicate the resources to pay for that's a tax that we should tax fund those positions. And we need those positions. Yeah, so we do have, um, you know, victim services units in prosecutor's office. It's in a very, very important part mm-hmm. of the prosecutor's office. Unfortunately, a lot of what they're doing is calculating restitution amounts and talking to victims who are going to come in and testify and trying to make those people comfortable. What happened in this case was uh, a case was dismissed without telling the victim first, and they had to read about it, I think, in some sort of media. Mm-hmm. And, you know... That I put on the prosecutor. I, if, I'm sure if a victim's um, services person knew about it, they would have, you know, kind of jabbed that prosecutor and say, hey, wait a minute, we have to talk to the victim. But here's the thing. We know that uh, Mr. Gore is new. We know that they're still ironing out ironing out the kinks. So hopefully this kind of issue will be fixed in the future. Yeah, I mean, they have been terribly, terribly short-staffed over yeah. there. So mm-hmm. I would love it if we didn't have to write a story like this a year from now. 
We need to take a quick break. Coming up next, a police officer who says he was fired for expressing his rights under the First Amendment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Here's one that maybe nobody specializes in, but boy, is it interesting to talk about. And that, of course, is the First Amendment. A DeSoto cop set up a Halloween display mocking Michael Brown's death. This display called the late Ferguson teen a, quote, fat ghetto clown, which gives you some idea of just the animating spirit behind this display. Well, the cop was fired. He sued. He said the city of DeSoto retaliated against him and violated his right to free speech. Nicole, do you have a good case there? No, I don't think so. Um, Generally speaking, government employees, I mean, they have, of course, uh, First Amendment rights. And, of course, they have protected speech under the First Amendment. But the protection is limited. And the way that it's limited is if it demonstrates that a government employee wouldn't be able to fairly do their job. Mm. And I think this case... That claim alienates so many people in the community and affects his ability to do his job in such a profound way that I think he's not going to be protected here. What if he were to make the case, hey, I'm in DeSoto. I've I've got this opinion poll. It turns out most of the citizenry agrees with me. This isn't like being in St. Louis, this deep blue city. Arendam, would that make any difference? Well, uh, I don't think so. I mean, there is a test that the Supreme Court sort of set out of whether uh, the opinion that's being espoused is something that is um, truly related to an important uh, societal significance in discussion. Um, And again, not to be necessarily judging what is okay and what is not, but I think that would be the balancing test here of whether this Halloween display is a true message of societal importance in terms of a topic that uh, you know, allows for some uh, protections on the First Amendment. But as Nicole said, the protections that you and I as private citizens get, uh, it's different than a public employee. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, especially with regard to a police officer in the community. And I think, um, as some of the news articles suggested, um, there were neighbors that were deeply offended and troubled by this. So uh, not knowing what DeSoto is like, but at least there were some people that were definitely troubled by it. Yeah, I mean, the city called this a, quote, public relations crisis. They did get blowback for that. Patty, that makes for a different calculation. Well, and, and the, the the Supreme Court standard, you know, he the, the exact statements that he's speaking, here lies Michael Brown, a fat ghetto clown, and he says that that is important enough because it is quote, directly related to a matter of public concern to it, race relations in the greater St. Louis community. But what the statement does is increase the public risk and damage race relations. So that 
it just is stunning, I thought, that he would even try to defend it mm-hmm. on the grounds that this is important for our public communities, race relations. No, it's d- deleterious to our race relations. You know, aside from just being in poor taste, it is, it is really harmful speech. I mean, this gets very close to, you know, calling a group of people vermin. Yeah, definitely something that people should not be doing, Nicole. Yeah, and I think, you know, when it really comes down to this case going to court, what the court is going to have to decide is did the department have the right to fire this person? And here's the thing. A police officer has to be able Mm -hmm. to neutrally engage with the students uh, or sorry, with their citizens of different races. And if they can't neutrally engage with citizens of different races, which I think that this pretty much shows that this person cannot, mm-hmm. then it's valid to say that they cannot do their job as a police officer, and that can be the basis for firing. It is interesting here. So this uh, this cop did not win his lawsuit. The judge did rule against him here. Um, but the judge said, oh, this guy has so many other issues where they were right to fire him that he didn't even really even have to get to the heart of this case, that he was like, let's put aside the First Amendment here for a minute. Let's look at the guy's actual job performance. He lied about this. He was incorrect about this. All right, this gives them the grounds where they could have just fired him anyway. It sounds like based on the legal analysis I'm hearing here, even if this guy had been a perfect employee, he would not have survived. But what a surprise, this guy was not a perfect employee. It would also make his appeal very difficult because it's not just the speech that got him fired. It was all these other things. So even if he were to win on the issue of the speech, he still loses his job because of the other, would would likely still lose because of the other, you know, Uh, the threatened and insulting women and, you know, all these other things that were alleged against him. So even if that one statement were permissible, which I cannot believe it would, because it it clearly reflects that he cannot interact with all members of the community. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but even if they, even if he could overcome that, he had so many other things he's going to have to overcome. He, He won't be able to overcome those. It is interesting, though. There has been in the news in the last month several professors at Washington University who have found themselves in hot water with the university because of things they've tweeted about what's happening over in Gaza. And I hear a lot of people say, oh, what about their First Amendment rights? And it's, well, Wash U is not, they are not the city of DeSoto. This is not a government agency. There's different rights that apply in different cases. But for this cop, uh, he might have had a First Amendment claim had he only said something that was slightly less objectionable. Fair summary. <laughs> or a different employer. A private yeah. employer might be a, a slightly different scenario. Yeah. And far less objectionable. Not slightly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> far less. That's fair. That's fair. All right. So last month, we discussed a trademark infringement case that the makers of Mission Tortillas made against Mission Taco Joint. Well, that case quietly settled in recent weeks. We still have Mission Taco Joint. I was there the other night. Uh, they're still using that branding. Not sure what to read into that, but it seems like good news for Mission Taco Joint. Now, Now we've got another trademark infringement case. The local chain of thrift stores called Found by the Pound has sued Found. That's a new shop at City Foundry. They're also alleging trademark infringement. From what I can tell, though, Found by the Pound did not actually register a trademark. Patty, could Mm. they possibly have a case here? Absolutely. You don't have to register a trademark. You, You have instant rights the minute you begin common law rights, the minute you begin using it in commerce, Hmm. not when you put it on your PowerPoint and bounce it around with your family at Thanksgiving, but when you actually start using 
that name in com in commerce, you acquire common law trademark rights. They're not the strong trademark rights of you know Pepsi or any of those, but you know they they are. So if you had uh, so they do have a case. The question is going to be whether consumers are confused, and that's. I found that a little I, – I don't know what evidence there could be of that, although they did mention some. But found by the pound is where you can go and buy secondhand clothes by the pound. Mm -hmm. Found, I guess, is some high-end fashion streetwear. Yeah. It's it's a different sort of attire. But it is attire, Nicole. But, it, but it's a different consumer base. Yeah. Probably a different consumer base. One of the things I thought was interesting about this case not being an antitrust lawyer is that there is this concept of common law trademark. So I think this is fascinating. I think a lot of people don't know about it, that, you know, when a business uses a name or a logo in commerce, that they can get essentially a common law trademark. And so basically, you know, they don't have to go and do all of the official things to trademark their business. Now, it's only enforceable in the geographic area where the trademark is used. Mm. It's also probably less enforceable than, you know, if you actually, you know, got an actual trademark. But I really did think this was fascinating for our listeners about what a, what a common law trademark is. Most uh, new entrepreneurs, they, it's something that we hear a lot. They want people will want to get a registered federal trademark, and oftentimes we discourage it because you don't need to go through that scrutiny. You might not even be able to get past that scrutiny. And if your business is of a local reach, or a you know, or a particular industry, it may not be a geographic defined place, but it could be a an industry segment or something. You don't need the trademark right away. <laughs> and, you know, registering the trademark is going to cost you a couple hundred bucks, but it's a long process and you may have to enter. And then that's not including the lawyer costs, but it's not always worth it. If you are opening up um, a, a donut place with a clever name, you could just do that. And then if someone else tries to rip you off down the street, you are going to be able to shut that down, <laughs> most likely. All right, yeah, I think as Patty said, the, the federal trademark system is is expensive and timely. There is a, a state process as well that you could utilize. I think one thing that's kind of interesting that we'll see whether um, the one at the foundry uses in terms of uh, potential defense is there. You know, Patty raised this confusion in the marketplace issue, but the other thing that's kind of interesting is they're attacking the word "found," right? Mm -hmm. And so, is "found" a distinctive? term that really associates with found by the pound, or is it a descriptive term, uh, which is not necessarily protectable? It's such a common term, right? Found. Found, yeah. And, and if this store is just, yeah, we, we find stuff and we sell it, maybe it's just a description of what they're doing. Yeah, I, I, I raise that for for discussion, I guess. But point. if they're selling high end streetwear, they're not just finding it. There's right? some curation. I'm There's sure. some curation, well, <laughs> and also some designing. One should hope. Oh, well, I thought found fashion was actually producing their own line or selling their mm -hmm. own line, whereas found by the pound is they're finding. You you find clothes, you can go buy a pound of it. Yeah. in a bag. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, yeah. Do it. I mean, it seems to me like a different consumer set. 
Yeah, they did say, though, um, there are people who are like, oh, congratulations on opening a new store at City Foundry. I don't know if these people will end up being key witnesses here, but they um, they probably will. Seems to be some confusion. So we just have a couple minutes left um, here today. And I do want to mention some good news involving Dave Rowland, who is sometimes a panelist on this show. One of those lawyers who takes cases pro bono, trying to help people fight their own City Hall. He represented a woman who's something of a gadfly. She was barred from City Hall in Edgar Springs, which is in Phelps County. Apparently, she didn't do anything abusive. She wasn't shouting at people. She was just trying to go to these meetings. They banned her from being able to do that. Well, the woman sued. She won. The city has to pay her a $150 fine, because that's apparently all the teeth we have or all the damages she was asking for. But it also has to pay Dave Rowland $44,000 in attorney's fees. Arendam, you've advised governments. Do you think that's enough to get their attention i hope so uh i mean this listen uh, if, if you read this article or, or read the opinion it's so egregious i mean we're talking about a town of 200 people so there was obviously a lot of other stuff going on here beyond this but uh yeah i mean this was pretty straightforward and you know it is people um uh, like this that really do hold governments accountable and you know gosh, we need more of it. Yeah. I mean, Patty, this is one where Dave and his client offered to settle, you know, time and again. They're like, no, 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 we don't have to have a trial over this. It was the town that insisted on taking this to trial. When you're a lawyer, sometimes do you have clients where you just want to bash their heads in? You're not possibly going to win in trial? (laughs) You know, yeah, sometimes. Or you have opponents who simply just want to go to trial. Um, And it's usually not the right decision. It's usually, you know, you're much better off making your own Deciding for yourself what's acceptable than letting a jury or a judge decide for you what's acceptable. Um, but these, these, this problem, it, 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 it did remind me of, and I have forgotten the gentleman's last name, but our Kirkwood cookie, mm. that gentleman, he was a gadfly. And I think they did get a, an order restraining him or something. That is so vastly different from just someone who is constantly saying, hey, you you didn't pave my road right or something. Mm -hmm. So there is always, there's always that gray kind of area. And what this case, I think, was very clearly not gray. Yeah. You know, in the cookie case was very clearly not gray. This was someone who ended up turning violent against city officials. Sure, yeah, and went on a mass shooting spree. Yeah. Um, But so there's there's like those are the two ends of the spectrum, and they're kind of easy to decide there. But in the middle, it could get really – could get really complicated. It can get complicated. That is so true. Well, thank God. It does sound like Dave was on the side of of the (laughs) angels on this one and won that case. We're very happy for him. Uh, Patty Williams, we're happy for you. You have survived your first legal roundtable. I want to thank you for joining us. (laughs) It's delightful. Thank you. And Patty is the founder of Lex Valorum. We're also, uh, we were joined today by Nicole Gorofsky of Jenkins and Kling. Nicole, thank you. Thank you. And Arindam Carr, a shareholder at Polsonelli. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. This episode was produced by Sarah Fenske with our executive producer, Alex Hoyer. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Doerr. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. 
Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.